I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Jody Stern on the show today, the Austrian Portfolio Manager for Weinbow. Hello. Good morning, Levy. Nice to see you. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you here. So let's figure it out here. You were growing up in Boston, but then you moved to Michigan. We moved to the suburbs of Detroit, which was nothing like New England and was quite a culture shock. Yeah, I was 11. How did you fit in there? I mean, what what did your parents do to kind of set the scene? Well... I didn't fit in well with the kids at school. I'd never met kids like that. But what they did do that made everything better was bought a piece of property with a barn. Oh, okay. And for the first time in my life, I had horses of my own and was able to ride. Because that's like every girl's dream. It's every girl's dream. I mean, even some dudes. I think I wanted a pony at some time. I always say I want a pony. I still want a pony. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, actually. Yeah, I got some. I got some room in this studio apartment. I can just get rid of this couch. And I see exactly where the ponies. <laughs> <laughs> so, how many horses did you have? Over the years, I had quite a few, but the main gang was um, a beautiful pinto named Injun Joe, who I took over from a riding stable where he had gone crazy. So I rescued him, and he and I were fast friends for a long time. I had a couple of others who came and went, but the brains of the operation and the one that got me in the most trouble was a Shetland pony who my father won at a raffle at a county fair and brought home and surprised me. She was the size of a large dog. Her name was Nikki. She was perfectly trained, and she was smarter than my whole family put together. Were there things that you learned in the upkeep and training of these ponies? I did indeed. I learned that if you bring the pony to school on the school bus, the school bus driver will get fired. <laughs> this is really true. <laughs> Do you still write to that person? Really sorry about that. <laughs> I think she stopped speaking to me a long time ago. But um, I learned that horses are expensive, as many of our passions in life can be, and we have to find ways to make them happen. So at the age of 15... I realized that selling pony rides wasn't going to cut it, although it was very fun. I would have paid a lot for that. It was a dollar. Yeah, I mean, I would have paid more. See, I think that was the people undersell there. I think your legs would have dragged on the ground. Right, right, right. I would have taken you around the parking lot twice. (laughs) And uh, 
I went to a place called the Westerner Beef Buffet, which was everything that you imagine it is. And I bust tables and I scooped pickles into monkey dishes and I scooped up quarters that people left behind. And I paid for my horses. Hay, straw, vet bills, blacksmith. What's it like going to a blacksmith? Oh, the blacksmith comes to you. Oh, oh, they do. Yeah, and the blacksmith was, I still remember his name. He was extremely attractive, and my mother made sure to be Around. on the premises yeah. <laughs> when, when the, the blacksmith, blacksmith called on us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he would back his truck up to the barn, and we would do a little pedicure on all the horses and get them new shoes, and it cost $30. Well, 30 bucks isn't that bad. I mean, yeah. I guess, I mean, that's a lot of money if you're making quarters and tips, though. You know, For I mean? real. Yeah, yeah, I could see that being... But I like the new shoes. <laughs> yeah. I got my new kicks. <laughs> well, they needed new shoes every couple months or so. Oh, is that true? They, that's how quickly they need them? Mm-hmm. And so you got, got your introduction to the restaurant business paying for the pony, uh, I did. pony shoes. I did. And how, where did that kind of carry along? Well, when I graduated high school and went to college, it seemed that no matter what I did, I ended up back in bars and restaurants for a job. Because whatever I tried to do, and I did try a lot of other things, and some of them stuck, but the money was always better. And I was far from unflappable in those days, so it was good life skill to learn to deal with people and stressful situations. It served me well for a long time. So I was a cocktail waitress in Ann Arbor at University of Michigan at a bar where major rock acts performed almost every night, 500 patrons, five waitresses, commission. Oh, so that's pretty good. Yeah, I managed to be a decent student at the same time. And then when I moved to New York after that, I had my first fine dining waitress experience. We were waitresses, not servers in those days. and um, Service professionals, nonetheless. Well, maybe in my colleagues' case, but not so <laughs> right, much in right, mine. Right. No, I, yeah. I hardly believe that. But. Yeah, well, I was, I was flappable and could handle four four tops almost, so that didn't last so long. Did you make a transition into other realms? or what? I did indeed. Um, I fell into a nonprofit organization, which, which was a fascinating part of my life. We were a cultural exchange organization. Um, during Soviet times, our mission was to introduce American and Soviet citizens and quote-unquote foster dialogue. And, and the basic idea was that... So you're a spy, is what you're saying. <laughs> I love that people thought I was a spy. But the basic idea was to talk to people and realize that they're as human as you and, and they have the same anxieties and concerns and passions and loves that we all do, despite these frosty governments that stood between us. I did get to go to the Soviet Union three times with college students, uh, with high school students, which was really fascinating. And I saw some things that um, most people I know haven't had a chance to see. What were those things like? I mean, at the time, what was it like? We went through InTourist, and there were there were multiple levels of everything happening. There would be these official meetings that were set up, and then there were the people that sneaked into a corner and had real conversations. We would go through our official program in the day, and then somehow we would kind of leave the hotel very quietly and end up in people's apartments, and they would have all their friends over, and there would be much, much, much vodka, and guitars, and singing, and toasts, endless, endless toasts, and we would find ourselves very much the worst for wear 
in the Trechikov or the Hermitage the next morning. It was fascinating. And the people, uh, because that sounds like the the novel Russia House. Did did anyone try to pass you any secrets? Were they like... No, they wanted to buy my jeans. Right, okay. And cigarettes, probably. And I bought caviar at a very, very, um, what was for them a high-end restaurant. The largest tin of caviar I've ever seen for 10 American dollars. Oh, okay. Savruga. 10 American dollars. 10 American dollars. Things have changed. (laughs) Made it all happen. Yeah, things are different now. Was it like one of those things? Are you, what kind of currency are you going to pay in? Were they like rubles or dollars? Yeah, mm-hmm. nobody wanted rubles. Is that true? It's really true. Yeah. So after you were a spy for a while, <laughs> you... That's where I developed my love of trench coats and sunglasses. But I mean, I guess it does give you an international perspective that like served you well when you were doing the international wine business. You know, like importer, exporter, it's not so different. Like, you, you know, you have to go and relate to supplier, producers, and you know what I mean? You have to go drink a lot with them and listen to guitar, whether it's good or bad, you know, whether that be Austria, Italy, or... I never made that connection between drinking a lot with my Soviet friends and drinking (laughs) a lot with the uh, suppliers I work with currently, but... I think it's good preparation. Thank you, Levy. You helped me justify a very, very lush period of my life. (laughs) It's probably no coincidence that uh, you look for saline wines from Austria after the Sevruga experience, you know? There you go. But so what happened next that, you know, because you were back in New York and then how did things go? Well, it was hard to survive on the good intentions of our small nonprofit. And it was a time when this will date me somewhat, but it was a time when the American culinary scene was beginning to happen. Larry Forgione had American Place. There was Wolfgang Puck. There were chefs of that of that ilk starting to get a lot of press. And people were beginning to be excited about the fact that we had food to be proud of and a cuisine and a culture that should be developed. And, of course, New York Magazine and all these other media outlets began to persuade us all to go to culinary school. And we were all going to go to culinary school and learn this whole new life and make a lot of money. Because, of course, according to the media, we were going to walk out of culinary school with our fresh little degrees and make $50,000 a year. Well, I was gullible, and I went. And I cooked. Um, I was not all that, but I was okay. And I cooked for about 12 years in restaurants like Union Square Cafe. I was the garde manger at Boulay, um, which was trial by fire, but I certainly learned more there than anywhere else. Did they have a signature dish at that time? They had. You know, it's funny. When I told people I worked at Boulay, everybody said, did you make that eggplant, Turin? <laughs> and I did every day. Every day, every day yeah. It had a goat cheese yes, cap, a custard layer, <laughs> and about 500 layers of thinly sliced eggplant with a million different purees in between. Do you ever make it at home just to impress people? Oh, a little something I whipped up. <laughs> I've thought about it. <laughs> I, I don't have any sheet gelatin at home. <laughs> right, yeah, it's tougher without the yeah. the supplies. Yeah. So what was it like working at Boulay? Who was there? Who was kicking around? Oh, my gosh. The people who were at my side bailing me out day to day, um... I'm sure your listeners know who Anita Lowe is. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, Amy Sherber of Amy's Bread, Dan Silverman, Billy Yosis, who went on to be pastry chef at the White House. Yeah. It was a fabulous, fabulous kitchen. That's cool. And I was just this girl over in the corner using my knife skills and not listening closely enough to the very quiet chef who was asking me by the wrong name for more herbs 
and I quote, cut like hair. Oh, yeah? Yeah. He was asking you for the wrong name, though? Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) He was like, Paula, get over here. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it was Robin. And I guess the lesson from that is no matter what you're doing, pay attention to the chef every minute. Yeah, like to, yeah. (laughs) Because I was the only one in the kitchen who didn't realize I was being summoned. Oh, I see, I see. So you can't can't guarantee that they're going to get your name right when they're calling you. Doesn't matter. Not about me. (laughs) Not about me. (laughs) Keep one eye on the dude. (laughs) But what was was Anita Lowe like back then in pre-TV days and pre-restaurant days? Anita was fabulous. Anita was my favorite thing about the experience, beside the super secret agent eggplant tureen recipe. <laughs> Anita was generous. She was calm. She was a total, total professional. Um, she was fun to cook with. And she could, she could dance around me 15 times a moment and still do everything perfectly. It wasn't a surprise to me that she went on to be the Anita Lowe that we all know now. Did she say your name correctly? She did indeed. Okay, so it's the full package. <laughs> You know, because some of these successful chefs, you know. No, everybody in there was really great. You were doing the back of the house, and you were like, uh, I could start my own restaurant, I could work up to the grill, I could be a saute person. But what were you thinking? I did become a saute person. I did work the grill at Union Square Cafe. Um, that must have been a busy place. It was a very busy place, and I was too green for my station. And I'm still really grateful to my chef for letting me have the chance. Again, I had kind people who could save us all when we needed it. On Saturday nights, there was a double black Angus rib steak that needed to be fired well in advance and cooked to perfect temperature. That that was one of the greatest challenges of my life to this day. Because <laughs> you've, you've had relationships, you've built uh, import empires, you've broke new countries uh, in terms of wine import into the country. but the Just don't r- wave that beef at me <laughs> yeah. and scream medium rare now. <laughs> No black Angus. <laughs> so, then was who was kicking around in Union Square those days? Was Karen King there? Or was Karen it? King was the bar manager. Oh, okay. And she made me my shift drink every night. So every day, every night, I had a chance to chat with Karen. And then when I made a transition eventually into the wine world, Karen became my customer. Oh, okay. Yeah, because she, yeah. And then you were like, hey, I remember you. I told oh, you a lot of things I shouldn't have said <laughs> I when you gave me did. that shift. I probably did because I was young and, and you don't learn about diplomacy and those things till much later. Fortunately, Union Square didn't give me too much to complain about. It was a really positive experience. And um, Karen, as a customer, she taught me a lot. She taught me a lot about our business. She taught me a lot about selling wine. She was so fair and so even, and so objective. How did that play out? I mean, It played out really beautiful. Um, eventually, well, I, I was lucky enough when we were selling Italian wine to have Pinot Grigio by the glass a few times at Union Square Cafe, and you can imagine what, what, oh, a, what a hurricane that would be. How many Rolls Royces did that buy? Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, <laughs> you, you, uh, you have to imagine like a very popular wine by the glass there. But when eventually we came to be selling Austrian wine, she was the first to do Gruner Veltliner by the glass. And she was certainly the first American wine director to do an Austrian wine dinner with my wines. Kat was pretty early in the game too, right? I met Kat at Vinitaly the first time I ever went to Vinitaly. And Vinitaly is an overwhelming experience until you get to know the ropes. I was... I was absolutely stunned at the size and scope 
of the fair itself and it was the like a large people. black angus slab it was it was yeah it was a large black angus slab cooked black and blue yesterday <laughs> and um we had a stand with our wines in it we had our own booth and there were the the stunning woman next to me who was i still remember everything she wore this beautiful coral colored silk chiffon blouse and matching suede shoes and the Bitbucket was on the floor, distressingly close to those beautiful shoes. So I told her that I was going to scotch guard her head to toe, and I moved the bucket away. And we've been very, very close friends ever since. Because she's the wine director for Barbara Lynch in Boston. Yeah, the BL Grupo uh, restaurant group. Because I remember going to Number Nine Park back in the day, and there was a lot of Gruner Valina around. Yeah, she was a big champion early on, and still is. So you had a few connections. You knew a few people, you're working the line, and then wh- wh- where did it go next? Well, I have two brothers and a sister, and one of my brothers got this brilliant idea one day. Well, he'd been hatching it for a while to start an Italian wine importing company. I was looking for a way out of the restaurant business because after 12 years, I felt that I had ridden that pony about as far as that pony wanted to take me. I didn't want to be executive chef or an owner. I just wanted to learn to cook, really, and toughen up a bit, which it did do. And my brother spoke to me just as I was about to accept a job as a sales rep for D'Artagnan. I would have had half of Manhattan as my territory, if you can imagine. This was early days. In the foie gras salad days. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. And... um He said, no, 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 don't do this. Don't do this sure thing that you'll definitely be very good at it with products you're already familiar with. No, come with me and do this thing you don't know how to do at all. And I said, okay. Maybe he said it more persuasively than that. He certainly did. He certainly did. That's how it felt to me. But because he was my brother and I trusted him implicitly, I said, of course. And so we started. I was supplier for all of the New England distributors that we worked with. We were... um, exclusively Italian importer, and the company was called Vindavino. And when did that start? What year was that? Early 90s. Um, I think probably 90 or 91. And what were you guys up to in the early days of Vindavino? You know, Italian wines were not quite everywhere in the same way that they are now. Um, It was a relatively fresh, exciting time to be in an emerging market. And we wanted to have among the best from every region we represented. So, you know, we had Giacomo Conterno from Piedmont. We had some really, really, really great producers, and it was so, so much fun. But the job to me felt like talking to strangers. Oh, I see. I was it was taking shy. you around different states, and you had to kind of cold call these people and be I like, hello. To, I had to walk into places and ask for things, and I'm not wired for that. At least I wasn't in those days. So how did that treat you? Any learning curve moments? Absolutely. Many learning curve moments and much kindness of strangers. Especially, uh, you know, you're always grateful to those who mentored you a bit early on. And mentoring can take some very um, amusing twists. Um, Matthew Lasorsa of Heights Chateau in Brooklyn was a very early customer. And he was always good to me. But one day in the first year I was selling wine, Matthew said, Jody... You have to learn to spit. Oh, yeah, I'm not yeah. I'm going to let you keep swallowing this wine. And he made me do it. That, that could have come in handy in the Russia days as well, probably. <laughs> yeah, I wish I'd known that then. <laughs> but um, that was sort of a stepping stone to 
starting to work like a professional instead of a girl with a bag of wine. And who else did you meet along the way of the travels? Well, I had worked with uh, Pino Luongo. Sure. I cooked at Le Madre, and so it was really fun working with those managers in that restaurant. Is that, are you being serious right now, or is that a joke? No, I really, no, 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 I'm okay. very sincere. I wasn't sure. I'm very sincere, I'm still in touch with all of them. If, what are they up to these days? Well, one is at Avoce. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, they're, they're all in good places. Cool, because that was kind of a very happening place and. uh in that, that era. The it was so happening, and those restaurants were exploding, and it was all success. Yeah, it was terrific. And um, I've seen Pino recently, and I still adore him. What's he up to? Uh, he's got a restaurant called Morso. Oh, okay. So you're, you're selling Italian wine, and then eventually it moved into Austria a little bit. Well, Austria moved into us. My brother and I, um, I should say my brother's name since I keep talking about him. His name is Seth, Seth Allen. Uh, we were at Vanitaly looking for a Barolo producer. So we were on our way to a meeting, and these two gentlemen approached us, said that someone had pointed us out to them as someone they should talk to. And this is a direct quote. One of them said, we're Austrian winemakers. Would you like to taste our wine? And and you're like, uh, Austria. Yeah, you hear the stupefied silence that I'm kind of following <laughs> that up with. I was trying to wrap my head around Austria. I'd been to Austria and noticed some pretty vineyards and didn't think much about it. But um, we did stop and tasted some wine. And I remember my brother tasting the first wine and his face changing and saying, um, do you have more? And then we tasted more and he said, do you have friends? I mean, we, we still didn't understand that this wasn't some one-off novelty idea. Well, those two gentlemen were Louis Crocker of the Crocker Winery and Gernot Heinrich. And Louis, of course, is no longer with us, and I still work with Gernot today. But, you know, every so often, if you're lucky, if you're really blessed, somebody comes along and changes your life for you, directs your path. I can't take any credit for this happening. All we did was say, yeah, okay, this is great. It happened to us, and it grew, and it, it kind of just took over my passions. So who were their friends? Who did they introduce you to? Well, um, Tony Bodenstein of Prager. I heard of him. Yeah, I think you've tasted some recently. Fritz Fieninger. Oh, Those was, are good. Yeah, there was Manfred Temmend from Styria. There was Rudy Piekler. There was Paul Ox. There's this whole stable of wonderful people that we worked with. There was uh, Fritz Miesbauer, who at that time was at Freiweingärtner Wachau, um, now known as Domain Wachau, and now Fritz has moved to the Stadtkrems Winery, who work with us. And at the time, these wines were not so well known in the U.S. Um, we worked in those years with Hertzberger, Knoll, FX Piekler, you know, all the sort of big names from around Austria, and things are a little more dispersed in the current scenario. But uh, Terry Thies, of course, was working with some of these people too. And I think that Terry probably had the same thrill of introduction that I did. In terms of he wasn't expecting it, and he was like, whoa. I can't speak for him, but for me, um, I felt like I'd been handed something entirely new and told, go on, go on, make this happen. Because in the late 80s, maybe everyone kind of forgot about Austrian wine. I don't think they ever knew. Um, I mean, 
I know that there were Austrian wines, and I know that some were brought over here. But I, and forgive me if I'm if I'm forgetting something or leaving it out. But I don't think that the scene then was comparable in quality to the scene now. And the more we worked, the more we learned. The more wineries we met, the more we traveled, the more we explored. Um, the red wine scene in early days was fledgling. And when we met Gernot Heinrich, for example, he was mostly making white wine. Oh, is that true? Yeah, we worked with Weisburgunder, we worked with Chardonnay. You know, this is from Bergenland. This is red wine country. And he took us and he showed us, you know, this new vineyard he'd bought, you know, Gabarinza, now one of his top red wine vineyards. And we tasted red wines with other people. And they showed promise, but they were nothing like they are today. You know, how often do you get to see something emerge and, and bloom and, and expand and become right in front of you, and you're right in the middle of it? You caught some good vintages at that time, too. In Fortunately, late, yes. That always 90s. helps. That always helps. And how did you see these people grow? Because, I mean, uh, I know Austria has a strong uh, domestic market, but what did allowing the introduction of export markets help or change for the producers themselves? I think it was a very exciting time for the producers. Austrian wine marketing, um, who are just the most fantastic collaborative organization anywhere, um, was at that time run by uh, Bertolt Solomon. Oh, sure. Yeah, Bert. Yeah, Bert has of, taken of over. Solomon. Yes, and he has taken over his family winery now. Um, Which is good. Yeah, and Willy sure. Klinger, who at that time was at Frei Weingartner with Fritz Miesbauer, is now in charge of Austrian wine marketing. And I love Willy. And he's doing a great job, too. But in those days, you know, Bert and I used to sit down over coffee or a beer and talk about how we were going to make this happen. And You're kind of plotting like a big thing, just two people. Because now it's, you know, people drink the Austrian wine. They pay a lot of money for it. I had no idea what a big thing we were plotting. It was so exciting to watch it happen. But I knew that I had to take a different approach. The flavors in these wines, Grüner was entirely unfamiliar to most of my customers. And I had flavors that worked with food in a way that no other wines had ever. Grunewald Liener had attractively vegetal flavors, mineral, smoke, all these things that fit into a place where I don't think anything had really fit before. Because it was the big Chardonnay a uh, little bit of Sauvignon Blanc, yeah. big, big kind of Merlot era. Maybe so. And Riesling was mostly sweet that we knew of. Wines were big. Wines were really big. And not only was I bringing in things that no one had ever seen, but they tasted totally different. Uh, Matthew Kenny, for example, had a restaurant on 3rd Avenue in the 60s. And I think he was among the first to do a vegetarian or, or a vegetable tasting menu. And I remember showing him the wines, and he said, my gosh, these are going to work with my lentils. These are going to work with my mushrooms. These are going to work with all these things. I don't know what to pair with, and suddenly I do. Victor Taylor at Les Finas, now there was an early supporter. He got it right away. So um, in many cases, I started working directly with the chefs because the flavors were just so compelling, and they were so immediately attuned to what they were developing in their own menus. And so it became a kind of hand-in-hand thing, a symbiosis. And you knew some of that crowd, and you could speak, you know, the chef talk, because you'd worked the back of the line. That's where my culinary background helped me, um, even more than understanding flavors. 
was understanding um, a little bit about how chefs were thinking and what they needed, what they were looking for. Well, also, um, this happened a bit by coincidence because my contacts were sort of on the high end of things, the A-list of things. Um, I was selling wines to restaurants that turned out to be influencers. So, you know, if you own a restaurant, where do you go on your day off? Maybe you go to Vong. Maybe you went to Les Binas or Boulay. And what did you drink there? Oh my gosh, what's this? And soon it started to move to other people's restaurants. They were influenced. So I had a lot of help. And this was um, very successful. In fact, I was interviewed at one point by a sales and marketing guy for a book he was writing. I didn't realize that this was a sales technique. It was just people you knew and it made sense to you. It made sense. It was the only way I could think of to make it happen. Did it seem like, looking back now, that Gruner and maybe Dry Riesling were gateways to dry wines in an era where a lot of wines had a little bit of sweetness, even though people were asking for dry, they were drinking a little off dry in terms of big Chardonnay, mm -hmm. but also just to the mineral world that's so popular now, kind of the fresh mineral character that people talk about virtually all the time is desiring. It's funny that you ask that because I've thought about it. In those days, people didn't comment so much on the mineral. And these wines are so much about mineral. What people seemed really surprised by um, was the acidity level. Uh, I don't think that people were accustomed to perceptible acidity levels in their wines. And that's one of the things that made these wines so good with food. Now I hear much less about that. You know, there are people who actually look for that in their wines and mind if the wines don't have it. And now I hear a lot more about mineral. Who are some of these people like? I mean, what's Tony Bodenstein like as a person? What's Tony Bodenstein is one of the most fascinating and special beings on the planet. And uh, you've recently met his son, Robert, who carries some of Tony's light. He has that smile. But Tony, I, it sounds hackneyed, but Tony is a Renaissance man in a fashion. You know, he's mayor of the village. Um, he's a geologist. When you taste with him in the winery, he has this basket of stones from the various vineyards, and, and he can explain to you why the wine tastes like this stone. And he's actually written a book about the terroirs of the Vakau, but he integrates his, his passion for history and culture and geology. Um, and then there's the winemaking and the very, very, very special land and microclimate that he inhabits, the influence of the river, which he swims across and back all the time. Um, Tony brings it all to play in this very, very small corner of the world that is unlike any other. The Vakau is a planet, and Tony understands it thoroughly, and he shares. And what about Krahar? You said that he introduced you to a lot of people. I never got a chance to, to meet the dad as now he's passed away. But mm -hmm. What was he like as a dude? Lewis was the most generous soul. Um, he wanted success for everyone. It would have been very easy for him just to say, please buy my wine, please sell my wine. But that wasn't enough for him. He wanted the wines of his country and his colleagues to be known to the world. And he worked tirelessly to make that happen. His generosity and his spirit and his energy never flagged. 
And it was interesting seeing just the rise of those wines in a fairly short time because it seemed like at one point everybody poured Kraher by the glass. It was stunning. Like it was stunning. Every restaurant had it. Yep. Everybody. Yep, and it's true. Everybody had a Gruner Veltliner on the glass. Well, you know, the producer might change, but there was always a Gruner. That's right. So, you know, I guess looking back now, why didn't that continue on? Like, why can't I be assured that a place is going to have a Gruner on on the by-the-glass menu now when I walk into a, a good restaurant? Did it get to be to the point where people are like, oh, Muscadet, oh, the Jura? Or, I mean, what, there was a very strong momentum. What kind of tilted the momentum? Well, I can speculate that we became much more open to other flavors, other varietals, I think that people got interested in expressive wines from everywhere. You know, Albarino got really popular, Chocoli, um, more regional wines from France and Italy, Italian whites um, became darlings, and deservedly so. After being neglected, suddenly there were so many more players on the scene. Is that is that sort of what you're thinking? I don't know. I'm asking. Because well, I remember this time period where there was everybody everywhere. had a Gruner, but everywhere. now it doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, there are Gruner. Mm-hmm. There are very good Gruner. Mm-hmm. I just don't see them everywhere. So I wonder why not. I guess I should get busy. Yeah, yeah. I didn't mean it as a criticism. <laughs> no, no, Like, no, I really okay. didn't. I just wonder, you know, I mean, even, you know, Terry's talked about it and stuff. Has, like yeah. how it used to be popular and it's less popular now. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. know. I'm, I'm not... I think there are more accounts now. I think there are more small stores and restaurants that are specializing. And maybe it's just a case of more doors that we need to walk through. People are expressing, you know, different things in what they're doing. And they have so much more available to them. You know, maybe maybe it's just been diluted a little bit. You know, working with Austrian Wines for Weinbow, how has that territory changed a little bit? When you go to see people, is it similar to those kind of conversations you were having a while ago? In terms of people are like, oh, this is what I need with food, or did they just know that already, or what's the difference? It's very unusual now. It still happens occasionally that I will walk into an account or meet a buyer who has not had an Austrian wine before. Um, It's really exciting for me when that happens, especially if they have Austrian wine ordered when I leave. But um, almost all the people I talk to now have tasted a wide range of Austrian wines and they've developed preferences and there are more players on the scene. So instead of being the only game in town, there's lots of wine now. There's lots of choice. We have to look for the wine that is best for that customer and hopefully it's one of our producers. You talked about the development of the reds, you mm-hmm. know, going from fledgling to, to more, I don't know, what more uh, understood by the producers. But in terms of the whites, has there been a progression there too? Because it seemed like at one point people were doing ultra fresh and now there seems like people are uh, aging things for a little bit longer in bottle before release sometimes. They are. You know, it's funny. The uh, consumers in Austria, I'm told by my suppliers, are always looking for the new vintage. Um, sometimes even if the new vintage won't be released for three or four months, they want to wait. Um, here... I certainly have customers who want the 12s, which we're working with now. But if I have some cases of 8, 9, 10 or older, people would love me to have older wines for them. And people buy them enthusiastically when I do. I think that um, older white wines, the idea of older white wines with the exception of Burgundy and maybe German Riesling, was not something 
that people realized was um, an attractive thing. But through experience and through the structure and flavors and unfolding of these wines, um, it's been a real discovery. So how should I understand Gruner Veltliner as a grape? I mean, we talked about it having mineral character, about it having some vegetal character, about it having raised acidity. What does it change into over time? Does it express itself differently in different parts of Austria? How how do I play to it in terms of a menu besides having things that are like lighter and or like Matthew Kenny vegetables or a little bit raw? I find it incredibly versatile. That's one thing that's always worked in its favor. And the range of styles is pretty stunning. You have very, very fresh, lively, crisp, gulpable styles of Gruner Veltliner. Um, and then you can go to profoundly complex, ageable uh, Gruner Veltliner from the Wachau and everything in between. Do some of those wines go through aging curves? Like, are, are are there ways of understanding them that you're like, oh, maybe I'll decant it today, or maybe I won't decant it today based on how old it is, whether that might be young or old, or do, do they shut down at some point? Or are there... Of course. I think every wine shuts down at some point. Um, decanting is often helpful, even with lighter wines. These wines have a lot to give. Even the simplest of them um, compare really favorably to simple wines from other places in terms of what they have to give. I mean, this is a wine where you can have a bottle open over a course of days and the developments are attractive, not unattractive. They're not getting tired. They're not oxidizing on you. They're just giving a little more. They're generous and they have secrets. And the secrets come over the course of days or years even. I've, I've opened bottles from the early 90s and they're fascinating. They're beautiful. And what are vintages that really stood out for you in, in Austria that you've worked with? I tend to like the vintages that the winemakers describe as classic. Um, That's always a good sign for me, too. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think 2007 was beautiful, 2005, 2001. My birth year was terrible in almost every vintage from everywhere, so fortunately I can't find anything from back then. I like 82s. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I love you. <laughs> But, I mean, what's the difference between Austrian Riesling and Riesling from elsewhere? I find Austrian Riesling more serious. It's It, 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 it can almost read a bit severe when you first approach it. Um, there's a lightness and a liltingness, and plus that, that, that touch of sweetness sometimes that we find in Riesling from, say, the Finger Lakes, which I adore. They're graceful. Um, German Rieslings I really love. Uh, they're packaged, they're, stru they're structured um, in a fascinating way. And apart from some basic flavors and aromas, I find Austrian wines just in their texture and presence very different. And how should I approach that difference? I mean, what would I think about doing differently with an Austrian wine than, say, a German wine? That was a reason. I would lean toward more substantial food pairings, Austrian Riesling and pork is fantastic. That's a great, that's a classic pairing. I find that the wine can handle almost everything. Um, so often I've even found Austrian wine people pairing it with red meat because it really does have the stuffing. At a younger age or older? Both. Yeah. Is that true? Oh. It really is. It really is. Um, at every point in its unfolding, 
it exposes something new and it will connect. Austrian wines will just connect with food at whatever point you open them. I wish I could say something really specific oh, that's okay. about pairing, but it all just works. You know, I think Vindovino is very associated with the Vakao uh-huh. and also to some extent with the Bergenland. I mean, what are those regions like? Bergenland is fascinating. Bergenland is like another world. Um, it's it's relatively flat compared to the Danube regions. Um, they do have small elevations and hills that, even though they aren't visually um, dramatically high, have extreme significance on what happens to the wines. They have great soils, a lot of former ocean bottom, a lot of limestone, um, chalk, and the wines really do talk about what's in the ground. But it's warm there because you have a warm climate coming over from Hungary. If you look at a map, um, Bergenland, parts of Bergenland, Middle Bergenland are right near the Hungarian border. So there's this climate that they call Pannonian, um, which, which blows over and brings warm winds. Bergenland's full of lakes, which reflect light and give humidity. Um, hence, there are sweet wines that are made there on the lake shores. That's where Cracker Winery is. And um, there are cool breezes coming down from the Alps in those regions. So there's a lot of different things coming into play. This is the main region for red wines, sweet wines, and they're beautiful white wines too, less Gruner Veltliner than we see in other places. Pinot Blanc, Chardonnay, Pinot Varietals, even Pinot Noir. And what about the Vacao? What's that like? The Vacao is stunning. It's like no other place I've ever been on earth. The vineyards are terraced. They're, he- they're held up with stones that have been set by hands over centuries. And when you stand at the top of one of these vineyards, like Steinriegel or, or Achleitner or Singeridel, and you're looking down at the Danube, the terraces below you, the, the vineyard rows below you, are so steeply terraced, sometimes you can't see them. You know, you feel like you're going to fly. And, and the river is way down there. So it's a single row of vines, a six, eight, ten-foot wall, and then another. Pretty much everything needs to be done by hand. Um, I've wanted to get up to certain vineyards like Tony Bodenstein's Riesling vineyard called Bodenstein, and we couldn't get our car up there. Do they use mules or anything to get up there, or what do they use? No, they have it all figured out. They have their little tractors and and their... uh, Funicular devices? Yes, and they're very acrobatic harvesters and so forth. What about those red grape varieties that are associated with Austria? What are some of the standouts in terms of future potential for you? Zweigelt now is pretty popular. A lot of people are using it, and I think the key to getting people... Um, to understand the potential of those wines when they're tasting them for the first time is to make an association. Um, I had a customer once say to me, I learn as much from my customers as they do from me, that Zweigel seemed to them like an Etna wine crossed with a Burgundy. I can see that. A and certain kind of Burgundy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not not a Grand Cru, but, but you know, something something pretty crossed with something volcanic and and mysterious. And when you start to deconstruct and make associations with those grapes and other grapes that are more familiar, you can see how they slot into the program. Because it seems like the reds have what you referred to in the whites. They're, they're a little bit stern sometimes. Sometimes. And sometimes they're really soft, like an entry-level Zweigelt, which is a very affectionate wine. Um, it's drinkable. It's gulpable. 
there are, you know, when, when I talk to a young wine drinker who tells me um, that they're fond of Merlot, and I'll say, what is it that you like about Merlot? And they'll use these descriptors that to me sound like Zweigelt. And I'll give them a little taste of Zweigelt, and they're like, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. And then Blaufrankisch, um, a little more structured, certainly spicier, um, a little more serious. You start putting that together with food, and you're singing a whole different song. And how have you seen those kind of young blind buyers progress or mature in the industry? What's the young guy like today that is different than how he was yesterday? Open, much more exposed to an incredible global variety of wines. The young buyers today know so much more, I think, because they've had opportunity to see more. There's more here. There's more to experience. So much more has been brought in. They know things. They see things that um, older generations of buyers know all about now, but they just weren't available to us in those days. So they have a point of view, and they've gotten more technical, as a matter of fact. You know, they want to know, you know, they want to know about the yeasts. They want to know about things that are more scientific. When we bring a winemaker to market, they ask very sophisticated questions. They're learning. What's been the reception on the Austrian side on terms of the winemaking or in terms of the the wine culture? What's different today than it used to be when you got started? That's a really good question, Levy. Um, I think that there's a flexibility and an eagerness to bring what the market wants, but never at the expense of what has integrity and tradition and what is authentic to the place. And what does the market want? I think the market wants variety. They want expression for sure. They want authenticity. They want something that speaks to the place it was made, the particular place that it comes from. They don't want something general when it comes to Austria. They want, they want this hill in the Comptal because this hill says this in the glass. And that goes perfectly with their Taylor Bay scallop or something else. They want a story to tell. Gemistrasatz is a good example from Vienna. And to have Vienna as a wine region with so many wineries is a great story in itself. And stories make it all happen because that's what makes it accessible. That's what makes us understand. Have you seen good wines that didn't have a story not succeed? They all have a story. <laughs> if they don't have a story, I have to make one up. I'm just kidding. But um, I think if there's nothing that we can connect with, if, if we can't become impassioned and enthusiastic about something... Um, that has an emotional appeal as well as a, a culinary appeal, and then it's harder. Yeah, you want to make a people want to make a connection with something. They do. They always make a connection with something. Um, when a buyer tells me I love this wine, they're saying more than I love what's in my glass. And have you seen food like in terms of what's on the plate change to be more complementary to the kind of flavors that were coming through in the bottle from Austria? Food has become more exploratory. There are flavors and ideas that we didn't always hear about. The idea of umami um, is one, and these wines certainly complement umami. Um, the idea of fermentation, people are using more fermented ingredients on their plates. And so, um, you know, I, I had a cooking teacher at one point in my career, this was Madeline Kamen, who taught us that we needed to cook to the wine. It wasn't about making a dish and thinking about 
what wine shall I pair with this? It was about recognizing that there was a bit of savoriness or a bit of salinity or a bit of this or that or a touch of sweetness that we needed to match in our sauces. And I think that chefs and wine directors are moving to are working together more closely than ever to make this happen. Um, it's kind of a dance. Thank you so much. Jody Stern, the Austrian wine portfolio manager for Winebow. Levy, thank you so much. Thanks it's for keeping fun. the dance up. Appreciate it. I'm a terrible dancer. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.